0: Hello, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon, episode 62, John 7, in A Song of Ice and Fire, A Storm of Swords. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. You know me from the internet, Liza and Arbor on Twitter, Tumblr, and LizaAnArborGold.com.
1: And I am another one of your hosts, Eliana. You might know me as Glass Table Girl over on Reddit, on the Mason Monthly podcast, or maybe as Arithmetric over on Twitter.
0: We have had a crazy week. <laughs> this has been. So much content in the last couple weeks. Holy crap. It was a whirlwind. Right?
1: Like, I'm <laughs> happy, and hopefully, all the rest of you are happy about what we've put out, but like, we were like, damn.
0: Yeah, we're excited for the next week of a, a normal schedule. Normal schedule, except not for Eliana, because you're jet setting off around the world right now.
1: Indeed. I'm going to go to Upside Down Westeros.
0: Good for yeah. you. Good for you. I hope you have a safe, trip you're doing that like soon so we are recording this we are getting you guys john seven and I, then
1: i'm going on a plane it's gonna be sick <laughs> hey
0: uh going on a jet plane you know like someone else like egret why would you, you know, do to this death. <laughs> why are you like spoilers this? the one where egret dies oh you guys we put out our first his dark materials episode it was on the golden compass slash northern lights depending on where you live what you read what you own and it was chapters one through three
1: yes so that is up now for everyone in the public and if you are a patron there's some fun stuff on there some goodies yeah
0: absolutely some fun little doodles
1: yes you know
0: got to get in there and check it out patreon.com girls gone canon
1: there has to be balance in the force. So as we said, you put out a lot of things this past week. And because I am traveling, there will be no new episode next week. So that is the week of if you were a $30 and up patron, you would get a release usually on August 14th, $10 and up on August fifteenth, and everyone else on the 16th. But alas, no one gets anything that week. <laughs>
0: It's like a reverse Christmas. Deal with it. Yeah. But it's the. In fact, you guys have to give us an episode.
1: Oh, I would like that. That would be cool. Let's yeah, homework people to do that.
0: Yeah, everyone do your own Girls Gone canon episode next week and send it to us. I hope that happens. What if someone That'd does? That would be amazing. That'd be it would be very interesting. I would love it. Uh, it would be most pleasing to my career.
1: That would be actually really great. I would love that, everyone. <laughs> so... Yeah, send us your episode of Girls Gone Canon. And Cannon. I'm not going to say which day exactly, but that is maybe my birthday week. So if you guys did want to send us your own Girls Gone Canon episodes, <laughs> A, because it's reverse Christmas, and by that I mean maybe my my birthday somewhere along that week. Hashtag Leo season. <laughs> Floating uh, it.
0: Yeah, A- Aries season came and went. Rip us. Um, yeah. So... Before we jump into uh, the one where Egret dies. Oh, do you keep calling it that? <laughs> That's what this is. It's how I get through the pain, Eliana. Yeah. Uh, before we jump there, we did get an awesome email from our friend, Nicole, aka Lady Ray of Sea Rise, mother of dogs. Ooh. I love her. I love that. I think it's very snazzy. I'm a new listener and have been loving the point of view read through. I started listening to your podcast after listening to History of Westeros' Valarie Reedus. Oh, love History of Westeros. Check them out. It's been a completely different experience reading and listening to a character's story all the way through. Sansa's storyline read all the way through with no interruptions from other point of views are a real life 12 year old puberty is awful story just thrust into an ugly and ridiculous environment. And people who hate on her do not take this into account. Stop side seat driving. We never know what we would do in a situation until we're faced with it. We only hope we will be the hero of the story. And sometimes we aren't always heroic. Sometimes the most overlooked actions are the most important and heroic. Example from Marvel's Spider-Man and in Infinity War, uh, while fighting Thanos on Titan with the bigger name heroes, was catching the Guardians before they floated away. Without him paying attention to catch them while they were unconscious, would there have been any Guardians left to come back after the blip? In regard to episode 34, Elaine 1, I noticed the descriptions of Liza's wardrobe seemed to be a callback to Queen Mary I, who dressed ostentatiously, and Elizabeth I, who dressed relatively plain to push the narrative of her virginity. Also, maybe a real-life inspiration of Philip II for Littlefinger, get Get a a job, preying on both Catalan and Liza, as well as Sansa and Liza. Philip II married Bloody Mary and then pursued Queen Elizabeth's hand. She also talks about how John's narrative is a slow burn horror story, like the movie The Witch. Uh, Katie Dickey, who played Liza Aaron, is the mother in this movie. Hmm. Reading his chapter stressed her out of knowing what he's going to face and how brilliantly George hid the crazy horror story in between everyone else's point of view.
1: Yes, this was a fantastic email. And like when it came in, I was like, Chloe, did you see this email? This is so good.
0: I know. I always am like, I have to mark it as on Reddit so that you see it too, so that it's on top. That's you know, what I do. It's really hard sharing an email. Actually, now no, I don't aw. know.
1: What if we just keep doing that forever and all of our emails look like they're on red, but they're all red?
0: We'll never yep. know.
1: <laughs> yep.
0: There's no other way to figure this out too, so.
1: <laughs> yeah. But I I thought that this was a really great historical background to some of that like fashion hour stuff that we're into, and I was like, this is such a, a great observation and analysis of that moment where Sansa's getting dressed, so.
0: Yeah, I loved it. I thought it was- it it has to be an exact- it's exactly it. Like, the whole time, I'm like, oh, duh, this is exactly what George is drawing from. I don't know, it was really good. It was just a really good thing to wake up to and see. Good email. Get your email game on, you guys, because- nicole's is up she has email game
1: we do have some like great emails too like other people send funny emails and of course we read oh, those we have great
0: emails. Aloud
1: for all of you so
0: yes yes uh if you email us if it doesn't get on trust me we will send you an email back or we will chat with you at some point i promise because we love your emails they're great
1: <laughs> well no there are those people that we definitely ignore let's not promise the men anything
0: <laughs> oh, speaking of, uh, our friend uh, Joe messaged us asking how far Littlefinger would make it in Survivor.
1: So I actually would not know. I wanted to ask the expertise of K.W. Dent, a.k.a. Kyle, over on the Blood of the podcast podcast yeah
0: i don't watch survivor i get it i don't watch it though so i'm i'm curious what everyone thinks because i don't know
1: yeah so everyone direct this question to at k w d e n t two, the number two. He has recently just binge-watched all of the seasons of Survivor starting from, like, 1999. Oh my god. Yeah, he was, like, talking about how he just watched all of Survivor recently. So I think that he's gonna be the expert on this question. And I just don't feel qualified to give an answer.
0: Yeah. We're gonna have to get with him, for sure.
1: Alright, everyone. And lastly, there was a tweet from... There were several tweets, but I wanted to call out this one from our good friend, Manuclear Bomb. It was a quote tweet of a herd of very closely packed together sheep. And in the middle, a little dog face is peering out. He goes, it's Jon Snow with the wild legs. And this (laughs) is just a very important tweet to me. Things with dogs are important to me.
0: That is why he is a luminary and why we have had him on our podcast. Yes, because he
1: sends <laughs> us dog pictures.
0: <laughs> it's not hard to please us. Julia, Nicole sent us dog pictures, too. She has many doggos, and they are yeah. variously wonderful, so it's not hard We're to please us. We're very simple. You know what we want. Yeah, you know what we want, guys. <laughs> Let's jump into our lightning round in Catalan six. Catelyn and Rob's campaign arrive at the twins, breaking bread and salt with Walder and his expansive family.
1: Arya 10. Arya and Sandor are on their way to a wedding, and it's going to be great. It's going to be sick.
0: (laughs) Catelyn 7. And so he spoke, and so he spoke, that Lord of Castamere.
1: Arya 11. Arya and Sandor are late for the wedding, but they're early for the funeral. Sandor gets the fuck out of there. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I was I, I knew you like that one <gasps> I worked really hard I was I was gonna do that one in Arya 10 and do something about that but I was like no this is Arya it it's is
1: fine. perfect
0: Tyrion 6 Tywin reveals the true monster beneath his skin
1: Davos 5 Melisandre's leeches strike again Davos' continued learning may save the realm hmm, hmm. that
0: brings us to John 7 Minimally fortified, Castle Black is watched over by Donald Noy, John, and the Men of the Watch. When things look grim, the wall defends itself, and John faces the unimaginable loss of a first love. Yeah, yeah I'm sad. Are you sad? I'm
1: sad. Everyone, we had to do this chapter on its own. There's no way we could compare this with something else.
0: No. It, it was always going to be John 7.
1: Yeah, we had to just let ourselves all be sad. So John 7 opens with They woke to the smoke of Molestown burning John's on crutches And he thinks that, well, at least no one's going to die In their beds because we can prepare For this attack, even if we lose And he's been drinking dream wine To ease the pain of his leg Even though he wants milk of the poppy But he's like, nah, I can't
0: Yeah, not with the wildlings coming He insists he can fight And everyone's like, mm, I don't think you can <laughs>
1: Donald Noy tells him, though, I have need of every man who knows which end of the spear to stab into the wildlings.
0: The pointy end. John had told his little sister something like that once he remembered. Noy agrees to put John in a tower with a longbow. He thinks of the the wildlings who will be coming up the king's road. The Magnar of Then, Grig the Goat, Corst, Big Boyle. Also, who are these? Like, they, they, they did not exist. I like that
1: he, he drops these names as though, like, yeah, these people were really important to me. I'm like, were they, John? I have never heard of them before.
0: Yeah, it's like George was just giving a couple red shirts in the last second. Like, it's the same thing in the books. It's it as like a TV thing where you have weird red shirts. Same thing, guys. Same thing. Yeah. <laughs> Out of nowhere. And then he remembers Egret even if he wasn't friends with the other wildlings. He could feel the throb of pain where her arrow had gone through the meat and muscle of his thigh. He remembered the old man's eyes, too, and the black blood rushing from his throat as the storm cracked overhead. But he remembered the grotto best of all, the look of her naked in the torchlight, the taste of her mouth when it opened under his. Egret, stay away. Go south and raid. Go hide in one of those round towers you liked so well. You'll find nothing here but death. Oh. Mm. Well, too bad, because she finds a round tower and dies.
1: Oh, damn! All right, great. Just, just Th- want to make sure we're all ready Thanks. for this. I mean, like if we if we talk about it, that helps us process our feelings if we're open about it, right? Just like Molly. I don't know actually if Molly processes his feelings at all. I thought that was just going to be a transition. Anyways, he's a Night's Watchman in one of the Flint Towers, and he's peeing. This was important for me to include in the episode. And he's on top of the t- roofs and towers, where there are several other men in black cloaks. But actually, nine out of ten of those men are in fact scarecrows. Everybody, look <laughs> to your left. Look to your right. Both of them are going to be scarecrows, anyways. John finds this ironic because actually we're the crows. <laughs> Imagine the Lakeu Reeves meme.
0: That's John right now. Oh my god. Well, they were Maester Eamon's idea. He wanted to intimidate the wildlings or hoped they would think they had more men than they actually do. And that's something we see a lot of people do, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, John especially has been fainting all that information to Mance of how many men they actually had, too. Mm-hmm. So it kind of reminds me of that.
1: Yeah, I, I do think it's a good idea um, to try and like make them think that they're well-protected. Obviously, it doesn't work because like, the wildlings and the fence. Yeah. So I mean, they're desperate. They're... Going to go for it no matter what. They're on this side of the wall, right? Yeah.
0: They weren't ever going to step down. I mean, Yeah.
1: It was worth a try. And it was worth it for at least, I don't know, psychological damage or whatever. Atop the roof with John is a boy from Old Town named Satin. The boy claimed to be 18, older than John, but he was green as summer grass for all that. Satin, they called him, even in the wool and mail and boiled leather of the Night's Watch. The name he'd gotten in the brothel where he'd been born and raised. He was pretty as a girl with his dark eyes, soft skin, and raven's ringlets. Half a year at Castle Black had toughened up his hands, however, and Noi said he was passable with a crossbow. Whether he had the courage to face what was coming, though. I do think it's kind of funny that what John notices about Satin is how pretty he is, considering that this is actually one of the first things that many people notice about John. They're always like, wow, John, you're really pretty. You're prettier than my daughters. <laughs> Well,
0: interestingly enough, not only that, but I think that's why John takes him under his wing so much, uh, because John sees himself in him. Dark eyes, ravens, ringlets, you know, mm. Satin has dark hair and light skin and uh, dark eyes, looks just like him. And John is a pretty young bastard who's lithe and fast, same thing as Satin. So he sees a lot of himself. And it does kind of remind me when we read this of how silly that show change was with Ali. There was no reason. Yeah. We already knew the wildlings were coming and they were big, bad, stupid. Satin was better. We deserve Satin. Yeah,
1: Satin, our beautiful, lovely boy. And when we say beautiful, we mean his heart.
0: I really do mean that. Um, Yeah, he is a good boy. John is limping along the King's Tower. It's him, Satin, and Dick Follard. There isn't a ton of protection or places to stand in the battle. And John remembers him and his uncle discussing the Night's Watch's walls and its lack of defense once.
1: The Knight's Watch is pledged to take no part in the quarrels of the realm. Yet, over the centuries, certain Lord Commanders. More proud than wise forgot their vows and destroyed all of us with their ambitions. Lord Commander Runzel Hightower tried to bequeath the watch to his bastard son. Lord Commander. Up jumped fuckers. <laughs> notes.
0: Up jumped motherfucking Hightowers. What? Are you related to Otto? I bet you're related to
1: I Otto. I know. That's what I was thinking when I read that line earlier during the reread. I was Bitch. like, of course the fucking Hightowers <laughs> tried to do that. I'm like, of course. <laughs> <sighs> Typical. Lord Commander Roderick Flint thought to make himself king beyond the wall. Tristan Mudd, Mad Mark Rackenwell, Robin Hill. Did you know that six hundred years ago the commanders at Snowgate and the Nightfort Fort went to war against each other? And when the Lord Commander tried to stop them, they joined forces to murder him? The Stark and Winterfell had to take a hand and both their heads, which he did easily because their strongholds were not defensible. Watch had 996 lords commander before J.R. Mormont, most of them men of courage and honor. But we have had cowards and fools as well, our tyrants and our madmen. We survive because the lords and kings of the seven kingdoms know that we pose no threat to them, no matter who should lead us. Our only foes are to the north, and to the north, we have the wall. Yeah, no, definitely fucking High Towers. <laughs> God damn it. As
0: always. Freaking Otto-ass High Tower, uh, bitch-ass Runsel High Tower. Runsel! What the fuck? What the fuck? And then... Allison. Yeah. I would love to know backstory on the other ones, uh, but it doesn't exist. I don't know if Georgie even has thought of it, but... I want more for Roderick and Tristan and Mark. I'm curious
1: about Robin Hill. Me too. There's definitely something meaningful though in this speech from Benjamin about the Night's Watch having its own share of cowards and fools and like tyrants and madmen, as he says. Like he's saying, you know, we're not like all completely honorable with human leaders, unfortunately, like they're very fallible.
0: Yeah, we're only human. And there's also an echo of the story beat we just
1: saw happen
0: with the the Lord Commander tried to stop them, they joined forces to murder him. And Jor being murdered by his own men. And uh, then there's that line, the Starks went in and had to, you know, behead the people involved. So I, I just thought that was interesting because it echoes the story beat that we just saw that 600 years ago, they talk about this mutiny and uh, murder. And now here we are
1: mm-hmm.
0: right past that. John reflects that now they're caught between the hammer and the anvil with the wildlings south of the wall.
1: Which is a fun fact. It's some of the similar language that we... Here in one of those Bearston Winds chapters, we're trying not to give too much away. He does think the lines of, it's the hammer and the anvil in a certain martial setting.
0: Yeah, and it's based off of that song of the Red Grass Field in that instance, which, of course, you have the, the Battle of Fire and the Redgrass Field, uh, the Blackfire Rebellion. The Hammer and the Anvil, though, is the song about the strategy used by Baylor and Makar against Damon Blackfire's army in the first Blackfire Rebellion. Baylor led Dornish Spearmen, he's the hammer, against the rear of the Blackfire forces and crushed it against Magar's shield wall, the anvil, which is what the Watchmen are basically about to do with the Wildlings, with the fire. Uh, The best part is Donald Noy is a blacksmith, so he's in charge of the whole thing, so he's choosing the hammer and the anvil strategy As a smith, which I thought was so neat. It's just like, I see you, George. Okay. And of course, you can see a lot of these little correlations from the Hedge Knight and Sworn Sword, because the Hedge Knight was put out in 98 and Sworn Sword was out in 03. George, during Storm, he had all these ideas that are going straight into 2003's Sworn Sword. Uh, And the hammer and the anvil is something that was in the Sworn Sword conversation between Eustace Osgray, I believe. Mm -hmm. So... Lots of really interesting ideas back and forth, and a lot of the language that leads into A Feast for Crows is found in those last two books as well, and Dance.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that's such a great catch and connection about Donald Noy, of course, choosing this strategy. That's so great. Um, Also, Baylor Breakspear. Love him. Hedge Knight. I love him so much. Throwbacks. Throwbacks, uh, Chloe.
0: Ugh, maker. God, yeah, absolutely. I'm having a romantic, you know, this is very romantic. And maybe at the end, I'll find you dead on a field. and I'll <laughs> Why can't I find body. you dead on a field? <laughs> I don't know. You do Ygritte's voice. I'm John. That's true. Oh,
1: you're right. Well, shit. <laughs> you're dying, bitch.
0: <laughs> All right, everyone. So Donald Noy makes them a wall. It's a 10-foot barricade of their stores. Broadcloth, timbers, grains, or so it seems. Uh, the last of the Moles Town people, called Moles, Adorable. are making the climb up with Gren and Pip. Woman, little kids, and old man. He wonders about those that didn't flee, and he wonders if the Thens would spare them.
1: Okay, I also think that we cannot skip over. There's this person called, like, I don't know, Sky Blue Sue, but most importantly, there is a lady. This is the quote Lady Meliana who was no lady all her friends agreed and i'm like
0: that's you lady aliana yeah, that's me
1: they just added an m in front i'm like that's <laughs> me i'm in this story i don't know how george <laughs> knew he knew yes yeah, so everyone i'm i'm in this <laughs> But side note, regarding those who chose not to flee, things were they too stupid or stubborn or whatever, I think it's a really difficult choice whether or not to choose to flee. I understand, of course, that Molestown is under attack. It isn't far from Castle Black. And of course, that makes fleeing to Castle Black easier. But this sort of situation, like this sort of crisis isn't a black and white decision and it happens a lot in our real world. There's a cost to either choice when violence and conflict comes to your region or town and considering that you know the largest industry in molestown is sex work it's implied that a lot of them are women so there's a lot for them to lose and in terms of especially in terms of safety if they stay in the town so it seems like a lot of them choose to flee but like the situation in molestown may or may not be different because of like that distance from castle black they might think that it's more advantageous for them to choose to flee their homes, but you might sometimes see that people choose to stay. And when people choose to take the risk to stay in their homes, it's because they're trying to calculate whether or not they think this conflict and violence is close to them geographically, whether they can afford to stay there because fleeing also has its own set of dangers as well, because out there on the road or outside of your village, you are also still vulnerable to attack. You don't know what you're going to encounter. There are still people out there. You might not have the same sort of food security that you have at home. There's no assurance of it when people are displaced and your community is all dispersed. And if you have family or children, that's a burden that people have to consider as well. I think it's a difficult and almost impossible choice. And I I don't know if, like, John's considering that. I, it, it is a slightly different situation, right? Because you can see Molestown from Castle Black, but in general.
0: Yeah, and this gives a lot of good shading for what's to come in the future when they take refugees once more from an even bigger and a more awful enemy.
1: Yeah, displacement in and of itself, like, is very difficult for people. And... Mm-hmm. The fleeing itself, again, is not It's not it's easy. not easy. It's not always the best choice. Neither is staying, obviously. And yeah. families make that choice for themselves and It is
0: interesting. I, w- I wish we had a bigger look on Molestown as far as just like a POV going there and spending some time there to learn some stuff we actually get to see because they do have trade. Sam bought the garnets mm. there for John's sword.
1: Yeah. And that makes sense. I thought that was
0: interesting. It would
1: make sense if they have a large, like, literally underground economy other than, like, the brothels, right? Because if they're mining- The tunnels. Yeah, in the tunnels. That would make sense for them to purchase garnets there.
0: John thinks that if they had the men, they should have taken the attack to the wildling. Cut them down on the king's row with 50 rangers, easily. But they don't even have 50 rangers. John reflects on how fucked they are. It's all cripples, green boys, Dornish Dilly, Red Allen of the Rosewood, Young Henley, Old Henley, Harry Hal, and Spotted Pate of Maidenpool. Some of them wave at John when he goes by, but some of them think him a turncloak still. Shut the
1: fuck up, (laughs) Brast. Donald Noyes commanding the men below.
0: He has a lord's voice, John thought. His father had always said that in a battle, a captain's lungs were as important as his sword arm.
1: It does not matter how brave or brilliant a man is, if his commands cannot be heard, Lord Mufasa. (laughs) Whoa. All you have to die is become a ghost in the clouds, and then you can really direct your your army that way, right? (laughs) Lord Eddard told his sons, so Rob and he used to climb the towers of Winterfell to shout at each other across the yard. Donalnoy could have drowned out both of them. The moles all went in terror of him, and rightfully so, since he was always threatening to rip their heads off. You know, just a thought. That's my father's man you're kicking. Ah. Just putting it out there. The booming voice? Mm-hmm, the booming voice. Ah, that's interesting. I'm just saying, just saying.
0: You know, John's lord face surfaces in A Storm of Swords and A Dance with Dragons later, so we'll talk about it in the coming chapters, but that is a very uh, interesting passage. He has a lord's voice. His father said you had to have a lord's voice, just like John, uh adapts that Lord face. So mm-hmm.
1: interesting, interesting. He's he's the commander man. Yeah, a lot of different ways of performing that. Here's a hat tip to Michael, aka bookshelf stud. We had him on for a Theon episode long ago. And he pointed out is Donald Noy inspired by Hawaii Senator, former Hawaii senator, uh the late Daniel Inoue? Hmm who fought in World War II as part of the U.S. 442nd Infantry Regiment, and he actually lost his right arm in a grenade wound. I thought that was an interesting catch.
0: I think that's, like, exact. That's really- I didn't even notice that. That's funny. Wow. Check
1: out Michael, a.k.a. at Bookshelf Stud.
0: Yeah, he's a dude. He's a good dude. He has a really good taste in Game of Thrones, the TV show. Yep. Like
1: me. And we co-host Meester Monthly, so-
0: Noi puts a spear in every able-bodied person's hand. He puts the children and women to work as well. Those too young to fight were carrying water and tending fires. The town midwife heals the wounded with Clytus and Amon. Three-Finger Hob has tons of spitboys and kettle stirrers and onion choppers. And even two sex workers offer to fight. And they're given a place 40 feet up the steps.
1: Satin is cold and he's warming his hands in his armpits. And John tells him that this is nothing compared to the Frostfigs. And Satin's like, well, I hope to never fucking go there. (laughs) And then he tells John, I actually knew a girl who liked ice in her wine in Old Town, and he's like, that's the only place I should ever belong in wine.
0: Which is, like, use grapes, you fucking (laughs) half-breed. I use ice when I don't have frozen grapes, but everyone should just freeze and use grapes. They're reusable, I'm just saying. Or you could just eat them.
1: And plus, like, what? They're in Old Town? They're not that far off from where they sell grapes the, in the vineyards. Yeah, the red
0: wines are literally, like, boom, right there. Like, they supply the whole entire world with grapes. That's what they or do. Or even,
1: if you're feeling really luxurious, peaches. Yeah, absolutely. Make, you could freeze peach up. Yeah, make yourself a sink, yeah.
0: Anyways, that was a stupid thing to say, Saturn. You should feel dumb. Uh, Satin <laughs> asks John if the sentinels had scared the wildlings off, but John thinks they likely stopped for a bit of uh, pillaging and raping, probably, or they were waiting for night. Midday comes and goes, no wildlings. Owen the Oaf brings raisin and nut bread, butter, cheese, onions for John's whole crew in case they're stuck there forever. Satin tries to give Dick Follard his food, but John tells him to eat because it might be your only chance before battle. I I thought that was great because this is basically, war is a lot of uh, waiting. You know, Mm. it's like a lot of hurry up and wait. I think it gives a really good view of that yeah owen asks john lord snow he calls him uh if the wildlings would come today and john says if the horn blows we'll know
1: two two is for wildlings owen was tall tow headed and amiable a tireless worker and surprisingly deft when it came to working wood and fixing catapults and the like but as he'd gladly tell you his mother had dropped him on his head when he was a baby and half his wits had leaked out through his ear Lot of humor in this chapter, George. For something so gruesomely ended, it's pretty well done though, because you need to have like all those different emotions for that ending to land. But yeah, John asks Owen if he remembers where to go, and Owen says, "Yeah, I'm going to go to the third landing. I'm going to shoot crossbows at the wildlings if they cross the barrier." He's like, "King Robert's going to come though, right? He's a mighty warrior." Meester even sent a bird. John doesn't think there's any use in telling him. Robert's dead. So he's like, yeah, totes, totes. They sent a bird to Owen.
0: John's going to practice this technique of socializing again in this chapter in a much sadder wow. way. So get ready.
1: Wow. <laughs> being attacked. The wildlings are here being attacked.
0: Maester Aemon had sent a lot of birds, not to one king, but to four. Wildlings at the gate, the message ran. The realm in danger, send all the help you can to Castle Black. Wildlings at the gate, the north in danger, come with all your strength.
1: Saying yes, I mean, it's not Robert, because he's dead. But one of the kings, a Baratheon even, does come. Later, later. Yeah. yeah.
0: The day goes on. The clouds leave, the wall weeps, the men pray with Septon Celador. they have a nice last supper of black bread and mutton and ale, and John tells Satin to light the kettle and fire.
1: As an aside for Septon and Celador, and I'm sure we've like, brought him up before, but not in this context, I didn't think to stop on it. I don't think it really means much for the story other than being like a fun reference for George, like how he likes to put, I don't know, House Stardane, or or name Mm -hmm. Tully's after Muppets but (laughs) the name Cellador seems like a play on the word cellar door which many writers including of course Tolkien and also C.S. Lewis and like maybe Poe uh that's a rumored thing, that it isn't really sourced, and people aren't sure if that's true or not. Felt to be one of, if not the most beautiful phrase slash word in the English language. Maybe it's cooler if you say it like a cellar door or something. But it had nothing to do with the actual meaning of the word, because like cellar doors are kind of, I don't know, mundane and lame. They think it's very beautiful just because of the way it sounded. Writers doing writer things.
0: Yeah, I, I immediately thought that today. I was like, wait a second, is this cellar door? So I'm glad you did that legwork because I did not get to it.
1: Yeah, I think it's also what reference in Donnie Darko, if any of you were into yeah. that. Uh, this is also how I feel about the word It's I don't think it's a beautiful word. It's just a fun word to say.
0: It is fun. It's like a differentiate is one of my favorites. I like to say differentiate. Mm. It's just got a lot of ba ba ba. So he goes downstairs to bar the door. The door to the king's tower was oak studded with iron. It might delay the Thens, but it would not stop them if they wanted to come in. Uh, I like that. It it reminds me of Night of the Seven Kingdoms. Oak and iron guard me well or else I'm damned and doomed to hell. That's the same moment. So again, lots of that writing leaking into here.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. John sits between two Merlins watching the sky turn colors and he thinks, oh, The stallion has ridden into one of the main constellations, and then he wonders, but wait, or is it the Horned Lord? And I think John wondering this is a way of showing and not telling of how difficult slash conflicted this fight's going to be for him.
0: Mm -hmm. And it is absolutely full of conflict. He's sitting there wondering where Ghost is, and then of course his mind wanders to wondering where Egret is.
1: It's homeward bound.
0: They came in the night, of course. Like thieves, John thought. Like murderers. What the fuck? So (laughs) fucking dramatic, John. Like you're gonna be a murderer, you big dumb. Shut up. Like you're literally gonna murder people tonight. Shut the fuck up, John.
1: Yeah. John's John's (laughs) very dramatic. Like people are like, Sansa loves the songs. I'm like, I don't know, have you heard John talk? (laughs) And damn. I wanna be aiming the dragon knight. What the fuck, John? And (laughs) damned. I love that. I mean, like, that's part of what's fun about John, but he's very traumatic. Yeah. This idea of like death, though, I do think of it being tied with like thieves in the night with like that day of judgment in Christianity and in the Bible. They often talk about like a thief stealing into your house in the middle of the night. But those who stay awake, in quotes, like, which means devout to the Lord and so forth, aren't going to have their house broken in two. And John and the Night's Watch are awake, at least. Yeah. So, Satin
0: pisses himself, and John pretends not to notice. Like a true He sends him to wake Dick, and Dick, of course, is deaf, so he would not have heard the horn go off and blast for them uh, to awaken.
1: I'm frightened. Satin's face was a ghastly white. So are they.
0: John leaned his crutch up against a merlin and took up his longbow, bending the smooth, thick, dornish yew to slip a bowstring through the notches. Don't waste a quarrel unless you know you have a good, clean shot, he said when Satin returned from waking Dick. We have an ample supply up here, but ample doesn't mean inexhaustible. And step behind a merlin to reload. Don't try and hide in back of a scarecrow. They're made of straw. An arrow will punch through them. He did not bother telling Dick Follard anything. Dick could read your lips if there was enough light, and he gave a damn what you were saying, but he knew it already. Ah, John has become the father, the daddy.
1: Oh. Daddy. So, yeah, it's just like... Never mind, I'm not gonna make this joke. (laughs) I do think... Yes, that's fun that John's taking Satin under his wing, as you said earlier. And John saying, so are they, in regards to the free folk also being afraid, is important for showing that he's like really learned and internalized Corn Half Hand's lesson and also, hey, if they're all afraid, this is the only time that all of them can be brave, truly.
0: Yeah, he really awards them a lot of humanity in his mind in this chapter. It's a lot different from what we would have seen in the beginning of a Clash of Kings when he was out ranging. And I mean, he later on when he goes to check what's happened to the people he knew, and I wonder too if him telling himself mm-hmm. they're like murderers and thieves coming in the night, if that's how he's coping with this, because these are people he was with for a little bit. I think
1: he thinks it about the Thens, right? Like, you see yeah. that he th- doesn't have very positive thoughts towards Stir, but he feels mixed about the other ones, and I think that's why it's important that we have this quote from Benjen, and then in the previous chapters John learning about the mutiny because it's like well shit people suck everywhere yeah John hung a quiver from his belt and pulled an arrow the shaft was black the fletching gray as he notched it to a string he remembered something that theon Greyjoy had once said after a hunt the board can keep his tusks and the bear's claws he had declared smiling that way he did there's nothing half so mortal as a gray goose feather
0: Something poor Quentin and I were just discussing about this is that this goose feather, uh, it's symbolic in writing. So this could really be a metaphor for nothing being so mighty as the pen as well with uh, there's nothing half so mortal as a gray goose feather. You know, like a quill.
1: Yes, it took me a second until you said it aloud and I was like, I see now what she's saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Think is dry
0: John watches shadows moving in the yard, and although he isn't a hunter like Theon, he is no stranger to the bow and arrow. He pulls the string, he waits, watching three shadows turn into wildlings with wicker shields. He looses his arrow and takes down one of the three shadows, missing the second time. Satin gets one, and John tells him, get another. It was only as he was running off that John recognized Big Boyle. Half a heartbeat later, Old Moly put an arrow through his leg from the roof of the flint barracks, and he crawled off, bleeding. That will stop him bitching about his boil, John thought. George.
1: <laughs> I've never
0: heard a big
1: boil bitch about his boil. First off,
0: yes. Second off, George, this is not the time. Can you respect the tone of what's about to happen? God. Uh,
1: Dick is on his crossbow, though, uh, which takes longer to reload. And John gets in three arrows for everyone that Dick sends out and the- If you are interested in movies featuring archery, especially people sending out three arrows very quickly, I would like to recommend the 2018 award-winning movie, Robin Hood, starring Taron Egerton and Jamie Foxx. It's on HBO Go slash now for those interested, it's a revolutionary movie about the redistribution of wealth. It also involves cool things with arrows, in which Taron Egerton learns from his daddy JB Fox about how to fight with bows very well as both a ranged weapon and a melee weapon. Amazing. It's got 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. Oh
0: my god. I will have to check out. <laughs> no, it <this>
1: doesn't. <laughs> Most statistics are statistically made up. I'm, I'm just doing uh, what John does at the end of this chapter, you know? Oh my god.
0: A warhorn blows to the west. The world was moonlight and shadow, and time became an endless round of notch and draw and loose. A wildling arrow ripped through the throat of the straw sentinel beside him, but Jon Snow scarcely noticed. Give me one clean shot at the Magnar of Then, he prayed to his father's gods. The Magnar was at least a- f- The Magnar, at least, was a foe that he could hate. Give me Steer.
1: I'm gonna be real. I didn't really see anything in t- that antagonistic between him and Steer. When he was out there, among I,
0: them? I think it's projecting. I think you're correct. Well, Steer was an asshole, though. I mean,
1: he was, but he wasn't more of an asshole than some of the. He, I don't know, just a normal amount of that's cold, true. in my opinion. But that's just. I an think
0: opinion. it's more because of their organization, mm-hmm. right? Like the Fens are kind of like mini lords. Yeah. So for him, he's trying to hate that class system, and maybe it's a bit of projecting on his part. It seems this is the one thing he's allowed to hate, right? As he says, so.
1: Okay. That yeah yeah that makes sense. John's fingers have grown stiff, but he keeps on going, and he senses fire in his peripheral view. It's the common hall, and it's on fire! No! (sighs) Everything is on fire! Uh, Suddenly, yes, everything is indeed on fire, and it's falling apart, and deaf Dick yells the armory, because the wildlings are now on top of the armory roof. Dick jumps into a kernel, but he misses his shot, and a wildling below gets him.
0: No, Dick. Dick. John hears the thump, and when he looks to see where the arrow came from, he sees Egret, Kissed by fire, he thought. Lucky. He blinks, and she's gone, and he lays his arrows on the men in the armory instead. He doesn't have time to waste on that, because the dance has already moved on. The stables are now on fire, and wildlings are pouring in through the gardens on the silent tower, bit by bit. He moves Satin and himself to the parapet that looks down on the gate, the northern one. The Thens have already beat them there. They are standing at the gate.
1: They wore half-helms and had thin bronze discs sewn to their long leather shirts. Many wielded bronze axes, though a few were chipped stone. More had short, stabbing spears with leaf-shaped heads that gleamed redly in the light from the burning stables. They were screaming in the old tongue as they stormed the barricade, jabbing with their spears, swinging their bronze axes, spilling corn and blood with equal abandon while crossbow quarrels and arrows rained down on them from the archers that Donald Noy had posted on the stair.
0: I just like that passage. I thought it was really descriptive and beautiful. Mm I don't know. The Thens have their back to the tower, though, so John and Satin start to pluck them off. But their lead is taken from them when the trap door busts open. John hadn't even heard the door downstairs break. He rips out his sword, crushing through the first man in the trap door, and then they fall back. They shoot an arrow at the next man that appears in the door, and together they lift the kettle of boiling oil to pour on the Thens. Ugh. The shrieks were awful. Satin looks like he's going to puke, but John tells him to retch later and follow him.
1: Down in the yard, it's a different environment. The villagers are throwing down their weapons, you know, being untrained in fighting, and there are too few brothers of the Night's Watch to hold the yard, and so wildlings are now pushing back at them and they're swarming. Rast and the Henleys have died, slash are dying. I didn't really know the Henleys, to be honest.
0: Yeah, I think they were just, like, very briefly introduced, so. I feel
1: nothing about Rast. I feel things, though, about Dick Follard. Anyways, Dornish Dilly falls and gets killed kegs also not sure who this person is almost died but satin looses an arrow to save him i was really confused when i had I had to reread that sentence several times i was like i'm confused about these kegs until i realized this is a person
0: yes it's a person the gate is lost everyone has fallen back john asks satin who he prays to and satin's like the seven and john's like pray to your new gods i'll pray to my old kid <laughs> uh john hasn't refilled his quiver since the trap door and so it looks like they're safe for a hot second the kettle hasn't moved off of the trap door satin was loosing quarrels at the wildlings on the steps then ducking behind a merlin to cock the crossbow he may be pretty but he's quick my refined tastes don't account for john valjean shipping but they do account for john satin shipping
1: yes i agree with this this is a correct take thank you This is also another instance, though, of John learning to put aside those preconceptions based on appearance. Because, I mean, being pretty doesn't preclude Satin from learning to fight, from being a fast learner, or, like, with training. Maybe even, like, kind of decent as a fighter. I want to point to Carl the maid.
0: Yeah, and, I mean, look earlier, the two sex workers from the brothel have spears.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Spearer.
0: So everyone can fight, and it's silly, like, war especially shows that everyone is needed to fight. Yeah. For them. The battle is intense on the steps. Spearmen are placed on the lower levels, but when the villagers retreated, it left everything below the third steps dead to the wildlings. Like Ned said earlier, you know, that's A man retreats, that's where you're dead. The heat of the fires was making the wall weep, and the flames danced and shimmered against the ice. The steps shook to the footsteps of men running for their lives. It's a scary song of ice and fire.
1: Yeah, I mean, like, more than once, right? We have the line, the dance moved elsewhere in regards to where the heat of battle is going. So yes, it only makes sense for there to be a song of ice Mm -hmm. and fire.
0: And fire.
1: (laughs) Sixty to seventy thens come pouring up the stairs, drunk on killing. A man is never so vulnerable in battle as when he flees, Lord Eddard had told John once. A running man is like a wounded animal to a soldier. It gets his bloodlust up. The archers on the fifth landing fled before the battle even reached them. It was a rout, a red rout.
0: Things are looking pretty bleak. (sighs) They are. Not looking so good. John has satin fetched torches, and satin lights one of them, has a whole handful armful of a bunch of unlit ones. John sees Steer, and he thinks, The bald, earless whoreson was smiling. Steer points at the gate, yelling something to his men about it, and John thinks Steer should have led his men over the barricade, but it's too late now. A war horn sounds from above, and John notches a fire arrow, satin lighting it for him. He aims for the supplies on the steps, repeatedly, running out of fire arrows, and then finally lighting the unlit torches and beginning to throw them. Up above, another fire was blooming. The old wooden steps had drunk up oil like a sponge, and Donald Noy had drenched them from the ninth landing all the way down to the seventh. John could only hope that most of their own people had staggered up to safety before Noy threw the torches. The Black Brothers at least had known the plan, but the villagers had not. Poor villagers.
1: Yeah. I, it's I mean, we spot. don't know that any of them are on the stairs, and I'm- yeah.
0: I'm sure some of them are.
1: The battle at the wall is
0: like a reverse Blackwater, basically, for a million reasons. Stannis shows up at the very end, and he's the ghost of Robert, where Garland was the ghost of Renly at the end of Blackwater, showing up in Renly's armor. And the plan to light up the supply pile to light everything up is kind of like the chain being lifted, and of course- with the wildfire going off. So there's so many things at play here that George is echoing from the last book, and having Stannis actually get to kind of fulfill this savior role later on is really cool, in a way. He gets his own Blackwater redemption.
1: He does. He really does, though. Can't can't lose them all, Stannis. You gotta yeah. win some of them. Can't lose them all. <laughs> gotta win a couple of them. Gotta stay in the- Got skin in the game, you stay in the game. Good job. <sighs> and then he can, you know, join all of John's other dads and be one of his dads, too. Nature does the rest, though. The fire traps the wildlings, and ice in the wall breaks, and kills Stir and some Thens. That was the last that Jon Snow saw of Stir, the magnar of Then.
0: The wall defends itself, he thought. I love that. The wall defends itself. Also salty as fuck. Come on, Jon.
1: Yeah. Jon's just like, got that done. It's a great echo, too, to back... In that chapter when the Thans and the other wildlings were climbing the wall when a chunk of ice comes attached from it and obviously everyone who's on the chunk of ice dies and I think there's something to be said of them both uh as you said using that ice and fire to defend the wall and using that as a way to make the ice work more strategically.
0: Yeah I I think that's definitely kind of a callback George writing that and having that be the way that the Steer of Thun dies John has sat and help him to the yard and has him bring a torch. He says he needs to look for someone. I don't... I mean, I'm, there's I, no one I to don't, look for. We don't have to talk about this. We don't have to talk about this. This is the end of the episode. This is
1: it. This is the end, actually, of the book series. The story. Yep, yeah. This is it. They won the battle.
0: Yep, that was it. And uh, we don't hear anything else ever again. Nope. Interesting. Just, Good story, yeah. though. I mean, and for our next series, we're thinking of doing... Yeah. So John needs to look for someone.
1: No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. (laughs) It's fine. Everything's fine.
0: He thinks that surely some of the free folk must have escaped, and she could be one of them. He's wrong, by the way. (laughs) But he thinks this. But he's wrong. Also, but what did he think? Like maybe she would have come to her senses after this and seen like, wow, the battle was bad, and I survived, and I'm going to go back north of the wall. Like what? It, it, they were never gonna be together like that's the end of it like John what was gonna happen
1: yeah it's like we are never ever getting back together but ten times worse
0: <sighs> the fire still rages across the wall although it had already consumed everywhere else John finds some free folk dead some he knew some he didn't
1: <sighs>
0: alright <are>, okay are <laughs> we doing this it. okay yeah we're okay, doing it we, we're doing we've
1: decided. it we've actually committed to doing this alright
0: I mean, we have to read it and try not to cry. We can't not read it. He found Egret sprawled across a patch of old snow beneath the Lord Commander's tower with an arrow between her breasts. The ice crystals had settled over her face, and in the moonlight it looked as though she wore a glittering silver mask. The arrow was black, John saw, but it was fletched with white duck feathers. Not mine, he told himself. Not one of mine. But he felt as if it were. When he knelt in the snow beside her, her eyes opened.
1: John Snow, she said very softly. It sounded as though the arrow had found a lung. Is this a proper castle now? Not just a tower?
0: It is, John took her hand.
1: Good, she whispered. I've wanted to see one proper castle before. Before I...
0: You'll see a hundred castles, he promised her. The battle's done. Maester Eamon will see to you. He touched her hair. You're kissed by fire, remember? Lucky, it will take more than an arrow to kill you. Eamon will draw it out and patch you up and we'll get you some milk of the poppy for the pain.
1: She just smiled at that. Do you remember that cave? We should have stayed in that cave, I told you so.
0: We'll go back to that cave, he said. You're not going to die, Egret." You're
1: not Oh Egret cupped his cheek with her hand. You know nothing, John Snow. She sighed, dying.
0: <laughs>
1: Wait, Chloe, I think, is legitimately crying right now. No I'm not. I'm I like don't looking at her face. I think she's sense. legitimately crying right now.
0: I don't think that I'm crying right now. <laughs> Why
1: would you say that? I don't that? know, you just looked like you were. I'm fine. Buying- <laughs> It's the morning. <laughs> oh, she turned off her camera because of this. Goddamn. So, so this is it. <laughs> this happened. This bitch is dead. She's our bitch. Sucks.
0: I loved her. <sighs> I loved her so much. Even in death, to Petty, bitch. I
1: mean, yeah. Good for her. <sighs> We've said this before, but like, this was. This was the death that actually really hit me hard in the series. Oh, yeah. This was the one. This was
0: uh, my first heartbreak, probably. Like, the Red Wedding sucked. It was heartbreak. Yeah. But this was big for me. When I first read through the books, this hurt me the most.
1: Yeah. I mean, like, you know, when Ned died, I was like, what? That just happened. But this one, I was like, no.
0: It's just awful. Your protagonist is faced with having to fight the woman he loves on a field of battle. And then and then she dies and he is guilt-racked for the rest of his life over it and then
1: <laughs> and even at the end like he's telling her, "Yeah, this is a castle." And we know that he doesn't think it's a castle, but he tells her that it is. It's just in miniature kind of like some of the rest of their relationship where he kind of gives her these sweet lies the whole time. He could never like truly tell her the truth the whole time that they were out there. He knows that she was hit in the lung, and that's a that's a big stretch for her to survive. And so he tells her all these sweet, pretty lies, like "This is a castle. You're gonna see a hundred castles. Eamon's gonna cure you. You're totally not gonna die." But I don't know. Egret's like, "Are you fucking kidding me? I know I'm gonna die." And so it's kind of like I don't know. (laughs) These lies are more for himself, I think, than they really are are for Egret.
0: He told Owen, "Yeah, they sent ravens, Owen. Even though Robert Baratheon and no one else yet." Is coming to save them, uh, and it's just like what Sansa says in her Feast for Crows chapters. Mm-hmm. If a lie was kindly meant, there's no harm in it.
1: Yeah, but Egret's just like you're an idiot. Yeah. That's basically her last words. You, you cute idiot, Jon Snow. <laughs> That's <is> what she <laughs> says. Basically,
0: it was petty as fuck. It was great. Like I love that Egret, as she dies, is just a petty bitch.
1: Yeah, she's the best. Yeah, but I'm I'm gonna throw it out there. They did send the ravens. They were like, mm. they even like circled back and followed up on the ones in the north and everyone was just like spam. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mark for yeah, spam.
0: And, except for one. Except for one person who checks his yeah, email. Yeah, that one he's like, flag is important. Yep, absolutely. He's lucky he has the right personnel checking his email Yeah, for he him. was like, flag is important. Uh, Forward. <laughs> Forward. <laughs> Mark label. Yep. I want to talk a little bit about season eight's implications and Egret's implications in the story and what her character means going forward. Season eight of Game of Thrones, if you have not watched that, you don't have to listen to this, log off, you know, or you can listen to it, whatever you want to do. But Egret is very much so set up for Danny. That is something that I really learned this read-through of reading John's chapters standalone. Uh, You have the wildlings versus the free folk as far as raiding and invading and these ideas about liberation and freedom. Uh, Egret's idea of freedom is a lot different from John's, as we've learned. For her, being free is something completely different than John's freedom. And Daenerys obviously has different ideas about liberation, some that may end up escalating, to put it the least. We'll see. Mm -hmm. We'll see. Fire, of course, kissed by fire. Danny is a, a little bit kissed by fire herself, not with the hair, but with the dragons.
1: Just like making and, out with it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. She's just <laughs> the struggle that John has in killing Egret is something that I really thought was highlighted well in this. He brought his bow up, but his fingers would not part, and she was gone as suddenly as she'd appeared. He couldn't do it. He had a chance. Yeah. And he couldn't do it. And of course, if the show is to be believed, by the end of the series, John will close that loop and he'll be able to let his fingers go on the bow. Yeah. Um. Yeah. It. it, it it's very much like just all these foreshadowing bits through this book. And so, of course, in John 2, we get that line we talked about a couple chapters ago. Old Nan used to tell stories about knights and their ladies who would sleep in a single bed with a blade between them for honor's sake. But he thought this must be the first time where a direwolf took the place of the sword. Uh, John obviously chose home and his family and the north and the people of the kingdom with the wildlings attacking. Uh-huh. And the direwolf is not going to probably leave that bed anytime soon, especially not when it comes to Daenerys. That direwolf kind of represents his honor.
1: And I. Don't know if we've touched on this in the previous episode, but of course, coming back again to love is the death of duty that Aemon says, and I guess in season eight is repeated by John to Tyrion. There's two ways to look at that line, right? In terms of that direwolf, as you said, it represents his family and it's John being like Ned, right? Love is the death of duty. Ned had a duty to Robert. And he withheld that duty. He didn't do his duty to Robert in keeping his family safe and keeping John safe. It's not just that John's love for Danny would be the death of maybe his duty to the realm. It's that John's love of the Dire Wolf, his family, same as Ned, is the death of his duty to his liege, mm. Daenerys.
0: Yeah, that's a really good way to look at it. There's the line in John 5 that we just talked about that I, of course, want to come back to because it's just so fucking there. It's just very, this line is very online. It's like, I I look at it and I'm like, George, George, might be we could come back here and live in that tower, she said. Would you want that, Jon Snow? After, after the word was a spear thrust, after the war, after the conquest, after the wildlings break the wall. Uh, that right there is just like after the conquest is what makes your mind just go red. Red alert nine one one siren siren siren. After the conquest, uh, you've said a lot about how Daenerys is a conqueror. Mm-hmm. She's conqueror, and very much so. Westeros will be seen as a conquest by her. It's like a spear thrust. The word was a spear thrust.
1: It was a war. The wildlings didn't break the wall. Someone else's gonna break the wall yeah it happens again yeah all later
0: if john was remembered at all it would be as a turncloak, an oath breaker and a murderer he was glad that lord eddard was not alive to see his shame this is from storm of swords john 10 we haven't quite gotten there yet uh but that quote out of context could probably be placed anywhere at the end of the story
1: that's true I don't know if Ned would look at him with shame, or if he'd just be like,
0: "I think he'd be very sad that John had to go through any of it." Yeah, uh, of what he had to. Mm-hmm. But there's that irony that John, of course, is closing that loop that Ned saved Daenerys and let her have live the life that she intends to live, or do the things she intends to do. In the end, he wanted to save her from being murdered by Robert, and now she has had a chance to exist. Is kind of the idea of it. There's a line in John 8, A Dance with Dragons. I am the sword that guards the realm of men, John reminded himself. And in the end, that must be worth more than one man's honor.
1: Damn. Yep. So
0: just some thoughts I wanted to bring up, some some passages to think on as we think about the future of John's plot and what's going to happen.
1: Cool. It's all right there. Yep.
0: I, I mean, I, I didn't write these books, you guys. Yeah. George did, George did. It's
1: one of those things that, like, Ugh. if the books were done, you know, Stan would bring everything together thematically on a reread. I'm seeing a lot yeah. of those right now for his Dark Materials, but...
0: Yeah, George uses themes really strongly, really well, really strongly, and it, it, it pays. It really pays.
1: Yeah. It holds it all together, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well you guys, this has been fun. Sure. That's a word. I'm fine. I'm fine. Yeah, this is fine. We're fine. This is normal. Of course. It's
0: kind of a bummer. This is kind of a bummer, Eliana. <laughs> Kinda of bummed.
1: I feel like we spent obviously you've spent a lot of time with Egret before, and I feel like we spent so much time with her again just now, and I'm just like, Wow, this is it.
0: She's gone. Yeah, and she really isn't in these books very long. Uh she gets two books to be in, you know? It's It feels like a, a long bummer. time. It does feel like a long time.
1: And like, she only really comes in towards the end of Clash, which is why sometimes when people are like, I don't know how George is going to wrap everything up in two books. Sometimes I think that sometimes I'm like, I don't know, a lot happens in Clash and a lot happens in Storm. It's doable.
0: Yeah, uh, The Winds of Winner is going to be one of those books where there's a lot happening just like that. So I don't really, uh, I feel like there are a lot of people that are hedging a lot of bets as far as how the pace of the book said, oh, it won't happen, it won't happen. But I think George could do it. I really do think he could complete it after Dream.
1: Yeah. He gets all the way from the Frostfangs to the wall in this book, mm-hmm. so. Yeah. Anyway, so, yeah, this happened.
0: Yep. Well, guys, next week we will not be back. We're taking a quick breather. Uh, Just in time for your August Patreon episode, if you're a patron, and of course, the eventual August His Dark Materials episode. We will be back for the public on the 23rd. We'll have an episode for early release on the 21st and 22nd for patrons. And uh, you'll start getting some other content piled out right around then, so get excited about that.
1: And of course, if you want to be notified about any of that content, be sure to follow us on social media at Girls Gone Canon on Twitter, or I mean... Maybe you want to make us an episode and you can send us (laughs) that on social media or via email at girlsgonecannon at gmail.com.
0: Please send us your episode of Girls Gone Canon. And while you're at it, make sure you subscribe to us to get updated on your podcast feeds. We are on a bunch of stuff, apparently Overcast now too, but you can check us out on Spotify, on iTunes, on Google Play, on Stitcher,
1: on Acast,
0: and on Podbean where we're hosted.
1: As Chloe said, we do have some fun stuff for patrons, so of course you get early release. And patrons, $5 and up, also get our special episodes. Just a few weeks ago, we released our episode on Northern Independence. Yes,
0: rock and roll. It was a very fun episode. We are going to announce our Patreon episode for you when we return. As always, guys, I'm Chloe, one of your hosts. And I'm Eliana, another one of your hosts go outside in the sun today and smile at a baby or sniff a flower i don't know do something good for yourself treat yourself don't read john 7
1: <laughs> don't read these books i mean the, it ends at john 7 there's nothing else to read and it, yeah. it it's funny it ends just ended as like mid page yeah he he's just going out into the yard and the battle just ended and i'm like wow interesting we don't have a resolution yep yeah.